1: whether you're a, wrong, a long-time wrong thinker or just wrong think curious, I'm glad you're a part of our audience today. I'm going to make it worth your while to stick around and consider some matters of great importance. At least uh, they could be of great importance. Ultimately, you are not required to agree with anything that I say as the host of this program. You're not required to agree with my guests or any of the essayists or columnists or uh, you know content providers that I point you towards But I will tell you, I do put some pretty serious thought into uh, the the material that I find. Uh, My number one goal here is not to get people riled up. I'm officially through the red meat throwing phase of my uh, broadcast career. It worked well, by the way. You can generate a very large, very loyal audience by throwing red meat. However, other than getting people riled up, I don't see a lot of value That comes from that. So I try to offer some uh, truth and light as I understand it, hopefully broader perspective on the things that are going on around us. But most importantly, I'm encouraging you to take ownership of your worldview. To be the kind of person who can stand up and say, look, I have looked at the facts or I've looked at this and researched it for myself. And, you know, this is this is what I think. You know, be open to new truth, but uh, don't be beholden to some official narrative or something that an official narrative manager is insisting. You have to believe this. Too many people have willingly surrendered their worldview to the control of people who don't have their best interests in mind, who don't want to keep them informed, but rather want to keep them in line. And there was a time when that would have sounded very conspiratorial. Oh really, Brian? And exactly how is this big conspiracy of keeping people in line happening? You don't have to look far today to see it. In fact, let's let's start on on this uh, on this note. You know, where you stand politically doesn't matter nearly as much as whether you are thinking clearly and independently about what's taking place in in your world. And when someone else presumes to tell you What you're allowed to see, or hear, or read, or think, or question, well, that's a major red flag that you're being treated like a child who needs to be supervised. And an appropriate response to such actions of someone telling you, well, you can't think this, and you can't say that, and don't you dare share this. uh, Here's what an appropriate response would look like. This is from Issues and Insights. It's their editorial board, and it's titled, Hey, Facebook, Facebook. Ban this. Their editorial says, Last week we learned that Facebook had been banning posts suggesting that COVID-19 originated in a Chinese lab. We became aware only when Facebook announced that it would no longer ban such posts, raising the question of why it was doing so in the first place. It wasn't as though there was no possibility that a lab leak was responsible. There was an ongoing discussion of this, and then, over the weekend, we learned that Facebook apparently has plans to ban posts that might encourage what it calls vaccine hesitancy. What does that mean? Who knows? Facebook never reveals how it makes such decisions. Morgan Common, a former data center technician for Facebook, told Fox News, anything that questions the vaccine... Or the narrative regarding the vaccine, which is, you know, everyone should get the vaccine. The vaccine is good and you're not going to get most or you're not going to get many bad side effects. Anything outside that realm is basically considered under vaccine hesitancy by Facebook's algorithms. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Morgan Comment, I believe, is the guy who stepped forward and went to uh, Project Veritas with insider information about how Facebook is doing this. And, of course, Facebook immediately blacklisted and banned the guy. Um, I saw that James O'Keefe from Project Veritas had uh, set up a, not GoFundMe, but something that actually doesn't uh, isn't quite as political, you know, in terms of the donations. And I believe they had raised almost half a million dollars, last time I checked, to help this guy sustain his family and support his family for the foreseeable future. That makes me happy. That tells me people are actually not only paying attention, but they're willing to stand up for one another when someone takes one for the team, which it sounds like Morgan did. So back to the article here, back to the editorial. How does Facebook justify basically banning or or, uh, getting rid of any post that encourages what it calls vaccine hesitancy? How do they justify it? Well, it doesn't. See, in one section of its community standards document, Facebook flatly denies that it removes false news posts. It says, We do not remove false news from Facebook, but we significantly reduce its distribution by showing it lower in newsfeed. Now they say, We've run into Facebook's horrible false news attacks ourselves. One of our posts correctly stated that then candidate Joe Biden wanted to outlaw gas powered cars. That was based on Biden's own campaign promises. Facebook flagged the headline as false, not the editorial. The headline, based on a bogus fact check. Facebook readership of the editorial crashed as a result. And they say it happened again when Facebook moved to block distribution of an article we published on COVID-19 rates in the U.S., in which we noted how infection rates in Europe at the time were far higher than the U.S., Yet the U.S., or more particularly President Donald Trump, was being blamed for a massive failure to contain the disease. As with the Biden editorial, readership crashed as soon as Facebook slapped its partly false label on it. So Facebook has not only been removing COVID-19 stories it doesn't like, but posts regarding election fraud as well. That's according to ABC News. Starting today, we will reduce the distribution of all posts and news feeds from an individual's Facebook account. Account rather, if they repeatedly share content that has been rated by one of our fact-checking partners, we already reduce the single post reach in news feed if it has been debunked. Facebook announced whether false, whether it's false or misleading content about COVID nineteen and vaccines, climate change, elections, or other topics. We're making sure fewer people see misinformation on our apps. In other words, instead of learning its lesson from its coronavirus lab leak disaster, Facebook is doubling down on its censorship campaign. So Issues and Insights says, well, we've had enough. And we hope the following list of claims causes Facebook's algorithms and fact checkers to seize up. I want you to listen to this list. And again, I'm not saying you have to believe that this is all, you know, real. But just imagine. Why would Facebook want to ban or at least limit people's exposure to anything that might raise questions about these areas? Okay, so these are some of the these are some of the uh, the issues, the claims that Facebook is trying to keep people from seeing. Things like all vaccines, including COVID vaccines, can have side effects. COVID lockdowns were a catastrophic waste. Mask mandates have been ineffective. BLM is a Marxist-led group. I'm sorry, my dog is having a meltdown in the background, but he'll just have to do it, I guess. Critical race theory is itself racist. How about this one? There are only two genders. Or Anthony Fauci has some serious skeletons in his closet. This one would definitely set off the uh, Facebook algorithm, censors. Election fraud is real and happened in 2020. Biden wants to ban gasoline cars. How about this? Electric cars are dirty. Hamas is a terrorist group. Antifa is a terrorist group. The January 6th Capitol riot wasn't an armed insurrection. Recycling is a waste of time and money. Global warming science is not settled. Trust the science makes no sense. Government is not the answer to our problems. Or, Trump has been right about a lot of things. Now, the Issues and Insights editorial board says if we're lucky... This will get banned on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and every other social media platform except those that actually believe in free speech. And they said, we hope it gets flagged by the U.S. Postal Service for whatever it is the USPS is tracking for the feds. Look, again, I'm not telling you, you have to believe everything that they just put out there. But those are some pretty serious issues. And I think the bigger question is, Why would someone not want you to be able to have access to robust discussion about them? Doesn't that seem just a little bit odd? This is too dangerous. You can't even consider such a thing. Either you choose what you will see, read, hear, think about, or question, or somebody else will. There is no middle ground. It's like like being a little bit pregnant. It just ain't possible. You either are or you aren't. Either you are making those decisions or someone else is making them for you. See, I trust you to make the right decisions, to ask the right questions. If someone doesn't trust you to do those things, maybe you should be asking why that is and what their plans for you include.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to
1: mention that our program is brought to you by great sponsors like pure light.com, monticello college.org, by the way, uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College will be joining me tomorrow on the program. We're going to be talking about the new economy. With all the stuff that's topsy-turvy and the ground shifting under our feet economically and, you know, rising prices and so forth, I think you're going to love his message because he's got a very uh, solid and hopeful message about uh, options you and I have that we may not have considered. also want to thank uh, HSLAMO.com for being a sponsor of the show. Appreciate every one of these sponsors. I have links to every one of them, by the way, in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. If you're so inclined, go visit their website, learn a little bit more about them, maybe drop them a note of thank you and let them know their message is reaching your ears. So I'm not ashamed to tell you that I'm a huge fan of the Beverly Hillbillies, and I have been for a long time. Now, as a kid, you know, it was funny but uh, I didn't really understand all the levels of humor. Now, as an adult, I get a lot more out of watching that show, but the thing that has always impressed, impressed me about the Beverly Hillbillies was the fact that they had this incredible sense of common sense and just basic truthfulness about them. They may not have seen things exactly uh, as they were, but there was, a, there was a sincerity and truthfulness that there was no guile about what they were doing. They wouldn't tell you something just to, you know, to, to blow sunshine up your skirt, so to speak. So I saw this article on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Robert Weisberg. America's elites are terrified of hillbillies. And he makes some very interesting parallels here. And I think he actually, he he calls this correctly. It's that honesty and that willingness to to not... Just be swayed by that need to be accepted or to appear sophisticated and cloak yourself in, you know, pseudo intellectual language to make you sound so smart. That terrifies the people who really want to control populations. Here's how Robert Weisberg puts it he says, Politics abounds with oddities, but perhaps none is greater. Than the elite's disproportionate reaction to the January 6th Capitol mayhem as opposed to their response to the largely black rioting following George Floyd's death. While the black rioting drew tens of thousands of participants, lasted months and was indisputably violent with billions in property damage, the so-called Trumpist occupation lasted only five hours and participants did not kill anyone or wantonly destroy property. So it's hard to imagine two more profoundly different events, and critically, the differences were visible to TV viewers. Why did the widespread, plain-to-see, Black Lives Matter violence during the COVID-19 epidemic receive a pass, even occasional praise, while January 6th is treated akin to Pearl Harbor? And the answer is actual behavior is irrelevant. Mr. Weisberg says the explanation, in my estimation, lies in who the protesters were, blacks versus hillbillies. Put bluntly, he says blacks can riot for months, loot stores by the hundreds, and otherwise run amok. Hillbillies, by contrast, need only arrive in their pickup trucks, assemble peacefully, express some patriotic cliches, and this inspires dread in the left. While elites largely turned a blind eye toward Black Lives Matter and their camp followers, even poo-pooing the widespread destruction of small businesses and the subsequent violent crime wave, they've depicted the January 6th event as an armed insurrection, and attempted coup d'etat, the worst attack on the capital since the British burned it down in the War of 1812, and a threat to our democracy, unrivaled since the Civil War, while describing the participants as domestic terrorists. Oh yeah, they've been pretty breathless about this one. Over the course of four months, as many as 26,000 troops were deployed to protect the Capitol through the threat, though the threat of imminent violence was minimal. That the House of Representatives recently voted for $1.9 billion to enhance Capitol security suggests that the January 6th incident was indeed truly terrifying to the D.C. elites. Now, Mr. Weisberg says, at the core of this elitist fear of hillbillies, a.k.a. Poe White, Rednecks, or Trailer Park Trash, is the elite's realization that these denizens of rural America, of America, rural America rather, enjoy an almost genetic immunity today to today's race-based politically correct narrative? Yes, the Dukes of Hazard County folk may not be the brightest bulbs in the chandelier, or especially well informed politically, but when they hear mendacious anti-American lies, they may as well be rocket scientists. They admire America for what it is not according to some bizarre ideology cooked up in a faculty lounge. Unlike timid elected officials, these people are not afraid of expressing offensive views. Imagine, for example, if some well-paid race educator showed up at Adi Murphy High School in bucolic West Virginia to instruct students on their toxic white privilege. He would, of course, be expensively dressed and paid $5,000 for his efforts. He'd inform youngsters that slaves built America, that black crime is entirely due to systemic white racism, that payment of reparations is a moral obligation, and all the rest of the critical race theory religion. Now keep in mind that most of those privileged whites in West Virginia are dirt poor, have family who've died of drug overdoses, suffer from chronic alcoholism, and face long-term unemployment. Well, Mr. Uh, Race Educator would not receive a warm welcome. In fact, his audience would consist of patriotic Americans who refused to accept the blame foisted on them by critical race theory. And unlike over-socialized Ivy League students, they would express their hateful, in quotation mark, views face-to-face. No doubt the educator would report back that he has uncovered rampant white supremacy, a bastion of the KKK, and all the rest that terrifies the liberal elite. A more accurate assessment, of course, is that our race hustler has uncovered a nest of unbelievers happy to speak the unspeakable truth. Hillbillies refuse to be placated by the elite's permission to run wild and grab free stuff. No member of the white trash community will have their political grievances satisfied by looting farm and fleet or upsetting tables at a cracker barrel. The hillbilly community is not easily bought off with elite-supplied goodies such as overpaid jobs as professors of Appalachian Studies or campus directors of outreach dedicated to targeting underserved rural populations. Nor are they willing to sacrifice personal freedom and self-respect to qualify as affirmative action hires. Chuck Yeager would never have enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces if they lowered standards to fill diversity quotas. Here's the line that really, I thought, stood out. Participants in the January 6th event are dangerous because they are unbelievers. Let me elaborate on this a little bit. What are they unbelievers in? The goodness of democracy and freedom for all? Nope. They are unbelievers in the fraud and the narrative that is being forced on them by people who wish to rule them politically. That's what makes them dangerous, not the amount of... They didn't kill people. They didn't uh, do billions of dollars in damage. They just don't believe what the elites are telling them they have to believe. And that's why you're seeing very ambiguous terms like domestic extremists being thrown around to describe those with whom the U.S. government must prepare to go to war with. That is the new gravest threat the intelligence community, the political class, they are ginning up the excuses to go to war against people who cannot be bribed into drinking the fake racial grievance Kool-Aid at a time when being a good citizen means embracing falsehoods. So it's this honesty that truly does make them dangerous. I have a good friend who once upon a time, he was just joking. But uh, he, he, he scored a, a real smack to my ego when one day he, he was just teasing me, but he said, You are a gun toting hillbilly. And I kind of took offense because I don't want to be seen as a hillbilly. But after reading this article from Robert Weisberg about why the elite are terrified of hillbillies, you know what? I think I'll accept that title. In fact, I think I'll wear it proudly.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm just wondering, am I striking too strident a tone (laughs) for this hour of the show? You know, the only reason I ask is because I feel better after sharing articles like the last one I shared from Robert Weisberg about why the, why America's elites fear hillbillies. I, you know, if I feel better, like, wow, I got that off my chest. Woo. That was a relief. Uh, Sometimes I worry that maybe that just comes off as, wow, he's really venting. Brian's on a tear today. Okay. We all need sometimes to, to just, you know, let go, (laughs) get it off our chest but I'm trying not to add more anger or more fear to a situation that's already pretty rife with a lot of uh, a lot of bad feelings. So I want to talk about something positive here for a moment. This is something I saw yesterday caught my eye. It was a post on Facebook showing a picture of people sitting in a library talking. Now, this is a quiet area, so I assume they are quietly talking. Nobody appears to be engaged in anything uh, you know particularly crazy. But this is a concept that I wish would catch on. In fact, I, I actually want to see what I can do, maybe in my own community, to, uh, to make something like this happen. It says, in Denmark, there are libraries where you can borrow a person instead of a book to listen to their life story for 30 minutes. Now, the ultimate goal here is to fight prejudice. Prejudice. And so this is not, you know, I mean, I know it's pride month and therefore every, everybody's fighting prejudice. You know, where's your rainbow? Where's the rainbow sticker? Why aren't you wearing it? Um, this is not one of those forced association kind of things. This is actually a place where you can sit down with a person and each person has a title like unemployed, refugee, bipolar, and I'm sure there are plenty of other titles, right? But listening to their story you start to understand who the person is behind that label. And maybe you realize you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. So this is an innovative, brilliant, active project that exists in 50 different countries, an initiative from the Human Library. They set up a meeting space where people can sit down together and a person can share their life story with another person for 30 minutes. And it's not just, I'm going to lecture you for 30 minutes and you will listen to every word I have to say. It's, it's, a, it's a back and forth. It's, it's asking questions. Now, I say this based on personal experience. When you have a chance to get to know somebody at a personal level, it becomes next to impossible to see them as a caricature. And I don't care if, uh, you know, whatever the caricature is, You know, there's, you know, you see me as a hillbilly. Okay, fine. Let's put that label on and sit down and let's talk about why I might be considered a hillbilly. I mean, for other people, it might just be, you know, uh, the label they choose is gay. Okay, great. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. The bottom line is when you talk to somebody, really talk to them and ask questions to understand, you know, who you are, what's your story, it's, it's impossible to hate somebody that you know. Caricatures are pretty easy to hate. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're encouraged so often to think of each other as caricatures. You Trumpist! You libtard! You know, when I hear people throwing those names around, I understand it feels good to call names sometimes. It makes you feel clever, you know, without having to do any of the work of actually making a case, you know, for anything. But it's unproductive. And if you really want to see people as they truly are, that's going to require some investment of time and effort to listen to them and understand them. I've talked about the experience that I had with the Better Angels organization, and I think they've actually changed their name, and I apologize uh, if, I'm, if I'm not current on this. I haven't done anything with them for a couple of years, but I attended a workshop with my friend Eric Mutzos a couple of years ago in Salt Lake City and it was a a gathering of basically a half dozen people who identify as staunch conservatives. I don't really go for the label conservative, but, you know, if somebody were to label me, I'd probably fit better there than on the side of staunch liberals, and there were six of them as well. So a a dozen of us sat down, and we spent the day together, and we had various workshops to encourage conversation, and we had to answer things like, um, how are you perceived... By those on the other side of the aisle, how do they see you? And you know, they, they as well, you know, I'm, since I'm on the conservative side, I'm probably seen as a gun-toting, greedy capitalist, you know, who's out there, you know, telling people what to do with their lives and making moral judgments on everybody. And you know, the painful thing is, there's, there's a little degree of truth. In these stereotypes, you know, and the liberals, well, these are a bleeding heart uh, liberals who are trying to promote, uh, you know, unwed motherhood or abortion or, you know, sexual deviancy or whatever the case may be. And they want to use the power of the state to force everybody to do what they think is right. And by the way, that goes both ways. So I'm just using this in, as an example. But these are some of the stereotypical ways we tend to think about each other. And we went through the whole day. Having conversations back and forth, I think I've mentioned before, uh, the very first thing, the my my first venture into this Better Angels workshop involved, they sat me right next to a, a very obviously transgender individual who turned out, by the way, to be an incredible person. And Eric Moutsos and I sat and visited with this individual throughout the day and came away with the realization we probably have more in common with her than we have with a lot of even the people on our own side that was That was quite a revelation, as in um this person, this transgender individual loves freedom, served in the military and 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 really values the ability to think for yourself and doesn't like to be forced and told you have to think this, and you know doesn't like the virtue signaling. It was very impressive, but the the most productive part of our conversation came when we were given the opportunity to actually ask people, why do you believe?" What you believe. Or or some variant of that. And the qualification for the whole day. I mean, this was this was you know the prime directive from Star Trek do not interfere with other civilizations. I can't remember. I'm sorry, I'm not a trekkie. But uh, our prime directive was you cannot try to change someone's mind. Now think about having a conversation all day long with people who are on very differing sides of various issues but you're not allowed to try to change their mind. And it's tough when someone starts to explain themselves. You know, you find yourself kind of mentally, I'm, all, I'm already starting to structure the argument that I'm going to use to dismantle what they're saying. Nope, I just need to listen. And when it's my turn, hopefully they will listen to what I'm saying or what I'm offering in terms of an explanation. But for me, one of the coolest moments came when we were asking the question... What happened or what have you experienced that causes you to believe the way that you believe? And it was really interesting because when that question was first asked, you know what the initial response was? Nothing. I mean, people got a little bit defensive. Like, oh, like something had to happen. Like something made me do this. And initially they would say, well, nothing happened. But as we were patient and we listened for answers, guess what? Every single person had something that they had experienced you know and it could have been extremely rigid religious parents who you know clamped down on them and forced them to to do this and when they you know when they were old enough they they just rebelled against it no i hated it i hated being force fed this um i remember one guy talking about uh, um at, at his church there was a there was a an organist or or a member of their church very very wonderful lady in good standing um he learned that she was a lesbian and nobody knew this. I mean, this was, you know, this was like a deep, dark secret. Nobody knew that she was gay. And he overheard some of the other, you know, church leaders talking one day about, oh, you know, these gays and how they're going to burn in hell. And, you know, just they they were so condemning of, you know, the of the behavior of Without even realizing that they were talking, uh, they were including, you know, and who was going to burn in hell, one of the most uh, valued and loved members of their own congregation. And he talked about how that wounded him and how he felt like that's that's a terrible injustice. They don't even know that uh, this person who is looked at as a pillar in their church is gay. And yet they were, you know, very clearly, oh, yes, yeah, they're all going to hell. They're all going to burn in hell. They're all going to suffer for eternity. And that was, what, uh, that was what impacted him and his thinking. Now, I don't think that uh, we all came out of there, you know, with, uh, yeah, we changed our minds and now the conservatives are liberal and liberals conservative. That was never the point. But what I did come away with from that exchange was, you know, whatever that person, whatever label you see on them or they may label themselves or somebody else is stuck on them. There's a real person behind there. In fact, there's a person who is a valued child of God. And when you can see them more as God sees them than as, you know, your your political predilections would cause you to see them, it's a lot easier to stop dwelling on the things that you differ on and to find some common ground. I know that sounds very Pollyanna-ish, and for people who are looking for a fight, I know. Go go find a fight. But if you're serious about solving problems without bringing more anger to the situation,
0: this is an approach that actually works. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. And we
1: are back. Once again, I'll ask you, please go to the show notes at the BrianHydeshow.com. Take a look down there at the bottom. There's a couple little links that I would ask you to consider. One of them is to subscribe to the podcast. The other one is if you find value in the content that I share here on a daily basis, I would ask you to consider becoming a supporter. And by becoming a supporter, I don't mean, you know, take out a second mortgage and write me a five-figure check every month. How about this instead? If it's something that causes, you know, that creates value for you or helps you to have a better understanding of the world and your influence, maybe consider becoming, uh, you know, a, <clears throat> a dollar a month, five dollars a month, something like that. That option is there. The link is right there at the bottom of the show notes again at the Brian Hyde show.com And I thank you in advance. There are people who are doing this already. It is so helpful to me. To not have to be out hustling around for side jobs and trying to, you know, trying to keep the wolf away from the door. I'm not looking to get rich. I'm just looking to speak the truth as I best understand it. And every person who finds value in this and becomes a monthly contributor helps me to accomplish that goal and focus like a laser beam on finding and disseminating the best content that I possibly can. So again, thank you for those who are doing it. Thank you in advance for those who would consider becoming a regular monthly supporter. I talk a lot about liberty, and, and I know I, I probably become a broken record at some point because it's like, man, that's all this guy really cares about. Um, it's not all that I care about, but I do think it is one of the most important things that we can have. Because with authentic liberty, so much of the rest of our lives fall into place. When we are using our liberty properly, in other words, when we're using it to, to make decisions that actually enlarge who we are as a person, that uh, refine our character, that allow us to prosper, our options increase rather than decrease. When we use our, our liberty and our freedoms in an un, un, uh, unwise way, when we're foolish about it, that's where you end up with things like addictions. Or, you know, you, you paint yourself into a corner with debt or things like this. But one of the reasons I, I believe that this matters is, uh, for for me, the connection came down to, I always thought liberty was a good thing. I was raised to believe, yes, it's good to be free. It's better to be free than living in the gulag. And, and that's that's a pretty easy sell to make, right? Not many people would disagree. But for me the th- the thing that turned a little spark of love of freedom into a roaring fire that has dominated my every waking moment for about the last 30 years was when I realized that there is a providential component, there is a divine, heavenly aspect to liberty. And I'll just be blunt about it. I believe that it is the greatest gift that our Creator offers us. But it's one that you have to qualify for. It's not just a gimme, and people who are are qualified to handle liberty have to be capable of self-governance. They have to be capable of self-control. People that can't do that, people for whom seeking pleasure becomes the most important thing, you know, in all times and places, they aren't fit for liberty. And it's sad to me how, how just the discussion of the principles and practices of liberty has become such a, a foreign-sounding language to so many of my, my fellow Americans. I saw an article today from Judge Andrew Napolitano taking liberty for granted. And it kind of stung when I read it because I realized, ooh, he's, he's got a point here. And unfortunately, this is stuff I've been guilty of. But he starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And Judge Napolitano says, no one knows if Thomas Jefferson personally uttered these words. They've been widely attributed to him, but they don't appear in any of his writings. And if he did not literally utter them, he uttered the sentiments that they offer. And that's to remind us not to take liberty for granted. Now, Judge Napolitano says, as America returns to pre-pandemic normalcy we should think about the dangers of taking our liberty for granted. In fact, he says this column has argued frequently that personal liberty is our birthright. It's a natural right. It doesn't come from government. It comes from our humanity, which is a gift from God. As God is perfectly free, so are we. The Declaration of Independence and Constitution presume that our liberties are natural and cannot be suppressed or taken away by the government absent due process. Now, due process requires a notice of charges, a fair hearing with all constitutional protections at which the government must prove fault and the right to appeal. The Constitution doesn't grant liberty. It restrains the government from infringing upon it. Some liberties are so essential to the pursuit of happiness that the Constitution prohibits their infringement, period, Without, with or without due process, rather. And these are the liberties that we exercise every day Worship, speech, peaceable assembly, self defense, privacy, ownership and use of property, commercial transactions, travel. We voluntarily establish governments to protect our liberties. But then he asks this question Are the governments we have established morally legitimate? Well, he says they are, when they have, as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration, the consent of the governed, and when they defend our liberties, absent consent, And the defense of liberty, government is not legitimate. Jefferson argued that government exists only to secure our rights. When it fails to protect our rights or when it destroys our property, we have the right to alter and abolish it. These principles of personal liberty in a free society were mocked and attacked by the government during the recent pandemic. And here's the sad part. Most folks went along with it. So Judge Napolitano asks, how in a land made prosperous by rugged individualism and personal sacrifice, not by government, did the people become sheep when their governors, without legal authority and in utter defiance of constitutional guarantees that they swore to uphold, signed orders that purported to deny the right to worship, work, travel, assemble peaceably, and use private property as one sees fit? Why did so many folks who believe in personal liberty accept these illegal orders, and cave to them? Why did we wear medically useless masks on our faces when we, not the government, own our faces? Why did we allow the government to close lawful businesses? Why did police and prosecutors break their oaths to defend the Constitution in deference to these gubernatorial power grabs? The same Constitution that restrains the federal and state governments from curtailing fundamental liberties also guarantees those liberties. Stated differently, the 14th Amendment, which imposes the guarantees of the Bill of Rights on the states and prohibits the states from impairing those guarantees, also enables Congress to intervene when states fail to uphold basic, fundamental, constitutionally protected rights. Did the feds come to the rescue of any of us in beleaguered states where our liberties were curtailed by executive decree? They did not. Did the courts, whose principal role is to apply and enforce the Constitution, invalidate the unlawful commands of governors or curtail the unconstitutional prosecutions of those who had the courage to defy them? They did not. Did any legislative body, state or federal, use its powers to write laws to invalidate the unlawful, unconstitutional, immoral orders of governors? They did not. And Judge Napolitano says this is a common thread running through all of this, and it leads to the dark and baleful state of voluntary servitude, a lamentable Orwellian state of affairs where people are so afraid of a new demon that they voluntarily bow to rules and commands that bankrupt them and crush their liberties in a vain hope for safety. He says the core thread running through all of this is fear, fear of sickness and death, fear of bucking the tide, fear of exercising personal liberty, fear the government might be right. Now, Napolitano says all these lockdowns happened overnight. There was no great public debate about them. There was far more acquiescence than challenge to them. The public took for granted that the governors actually had the authority they claimed they had and actually could become dictators in a crisis of fear, a crisis they created. Now that is, now that this is for the most part behind us, the question arises, why did we let this happen? And he says it happened because we take liberty for granted. We repose the Constitution for safekeeping in the hands of men and women who, in the eternal conflict of personal liberty versus governmental power, side with power. These are folks popularly elected elected who don't care about liberty. They care about control. He says, as of this writing, there is no clear answer to the cause of COVID-19, but the cause of the pandemic was taking liberty for granted. What kind of society is ours? You can go to jail for fishing or barbering without a license, but if you're a governor, you can crush the liberty of millions and destroy the property of thousands with impunity. The next time this happens, he asks, will we cave or will we resist? One of the rights championed by Jefferson and his fellow founders was the right to secede from the government, the right to avoid a government to which one never consented. This is the core natural right for which the American Revolution was fought.